you would, open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 3. As we continue and near the end of our study of these amazing verses here. I'll go ahead and read verses 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And then we will begin. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Before we get into our question that we'll be asking the author of Hebrews today, I want to re-emphasize the reason behind this series and try to elevate for you again why we've been doing this. We've spent, I believe it's now nine weeks on this section of Scripture. We've gone through Hebrews up to this point. It's one of the main reasons I wanted to teach through Hebrews is to get to this point. And we have attempted to mine the depths of this passage and asking many questions of the author How ought we to exhort one another? What you'll recognize in this text, as I try to just give more full understanding of this text each week, is that there is a fourfold problem. The fourfold problem is this. The first being, we need to endure. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there is a requirement or an expectation arguably even a promise that those who are truly in Christ will endure to the end. However, what makes that a problem is that our nature is fickle. As the old hymn says, and I've quoted it before, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts lead us astray, our hearts deceive us. The heart is desperately sick, the prophet says. So that's the first problem. We need to endure, but we're fickle. And weak. The second part of the problem is the alluring deceptiveness of sin. He says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The idea in the original language is not that it just deceives. Sin doesn't just tell you lies. It tells you lies in a very appealing way. It's the alluring deceitfulness of sin. The third part of the problem is that sin allows for unbelief to be birthed and thrive in our hearts. See how he says it here. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in the preceding verse, like that's what we've been focusing on, the how. But he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart. So sin and this alluring deceitfulness of sin allows unbelief to begin. And it allows, it gives space to unbelief and lets it grow and fester and kill. The fourth part of this fourfold problem is that unbelief, this is the main thing, unbelief severs us from the blessings 
of God. There's no other way to read the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. This is how he says it in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, the promise is there. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. If in your heart, and I'm not talking about doubt, right? All of us have a degree of doubt that comes into our minds, questions about the legitimacy of our faith or certain doctrines within the faith. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the battle to exert confidence that you should be engaged in every day. I'm talking about unbelief. Perfectly imaged for us in what Adam and Eve believed. They took the fruit because they didn't believe God was good. And if in your heart you see in yourself a tendency to say, I don't think God is good. I don't think I can trust him in this way. I don't think I can follow him in this way because his will towards me may not be as good as what my plan is. That's unbelief. And that will sever you from the blessings of God. So that's the fourfold problem. The weight of responsibility is also given in this text. On the one hand, it is God who will ultimately do the work to make us endure to the end. And he loses none of those who he has given to the Son. Two passages to enforce this and reinforce this. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He is able to keep you from stumbling. The sufficiency belongs to Christ. The strength is His. It is by His Spirit whereby we will endure. And then John 6, 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking. That I should lose nothing of all that He, the Father, has given me, but raise it up on the last day. But... At the same time, we can honestly and in faith answer this question. How is it or what will it look like for God to make sure that we endure and to keep us from stumbling? How will he not lose us? The divinely preferred way that he keeps us and makes sure that we endure and makes sure that we are not lost is through the exhortation of your brothers and sisters. We must kill this idea that the Christian life is just about you and Jesus. It's about us together being made into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Many people seek meaning and purpose in the Christian life and you know, this is especially a challenge for young people. There's, there's always this striving or this sense that I want my life to really be about something and to count for something. Not realizing that you are placed in your brothers and sisters' lives as a Christian to help them endure. That you're an integral part, an essential part of their testimony. Where on the last day they will declare all to the glory of God that he kept them from stumbling and your names will be mentioned in their story. 
This is how his grace was made manifest to me. This is how his sustaining work made itself known in my life, that this brother or sister did what they were supposed to do in exhorting me every day. And I was kept. That you are, as we are so often prone to say, the hands and feet of Jesus, not just going out and serving people, but keeping the brothers. And I know those two ideas are hard to understand, that Jesus will lose none of those that the Father has given them, but it will be through your exhortation and your caring and your loving for your brothers and sisters. It's not a contradiction. The third thing in this passage is the sure strength of the antidote to this fourfold problem. The ultimate reason why I wanted to spend so much time here is that there is great confidence, confidence giving power in these verses. It's not just a cool series, right? And I'm not copying anyone or doing something they told me to do in seminary by focusing on this passage. I'm actually breaking a lot of rules by doing this. Yet I feel deeply convinced that we have to get this. So these different messages that we've done in this series have been, if you will, a summons. And also a validation. This is for everyone. It's not optional. I've been trying to show in all the different relationships that exist within the church that it's not just for the mature, what we would call the super Christians or the pro Christians among us. It's not just for ministers, deacons, pastors or whatever to exhort the brothers and sisters. It's for everybody. And it's not just for you exhorting the people that you like or the people that you know. It's for you exhorting everyone. Exhort one another. So I've been trying to show and to give you ideas each time in the different relationships that exist how you can do this. No exceptions. We can engage in this noble and meaningful work with confidence. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the Spirit's antidote to prevent those from falling away in our midst. The whole point of this series is to help you form ideas based on the Bible of how to obey this command. And today is no different. I'm trying to help you untangle some of the difficulty surrounding the question, how do I exhort people who are different than me? Because each of us, I think, find it pretty easy to exhort or encourage or hang out with in a spiritual way people who are just like us. But you add in a generational gap, which is what we're talking about today, or you add in a gender difference or an echo, uh, economic difference, or maybe a background difference. And how do you do that? We all struggle to relate to people who are different than us. Like I'm a I'm a 31-year-old white American who had a degree in humanities and philosophy. Right? And I have a hard time relating to certain types of people. I try to be better at that. I was also homeschooled, so don't, don't even go there. So, but like Seattle Seahawks fans, I just don't know how to relate to you, right? I just don't understand it, right? Just kidding, just kidding. Um, I know how to relate to you. I can just make fun of Russell Wilson, so just kidding. Um, but there are whole people groups that I struggle to know how to really relate to. 
part of the problem is that we don't put ourselves in other people's shoes and we see our lives only through our own lens and only when we find someone who has had similar experiences or similar worldviews do we understand how to relate to them because we're so self-absorbed. So, how are we going to answer this question? The question today is how can the old exhort the young and how can the young exhort the old? And maybe, you may, maybe you're kind of in the place where you're like, I don't know if I'd be considered old or young. Well, there are people older than you and people younger than you, regardless of where you are, really. So this is a question for everyone. And both applications for both sets apply to everyone. So last week I mentioned two pillars of our method in answering this question. How do I exhort this group of people, those who are younger than me, those who are older than me, those who are different from me, whatever you would fill in in that blank. My argument last week and what I will continue to assert this week is that Jesus is our example. And there are three passages in Hebrews in particular that I'll go to to show how Jesus is our example. He's not just our Savior. He's not just our substitute. He's not just our Lord and King, which he very much is. He is also our example in how to live a life that's pleasing to God. The first passage is Hebrews 2, verses 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself have suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Also Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 12, 1 and 3, this one I've added since last week. Therefore, since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Most people stop the quote there. Looking to Jesus, the author or founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Based on all three of these verses, Jesus is being put forward as our example to look to and to follow. We're not just supposed to think of him in some super spiritual way and to have our hearts stirred and affections towards him. We're supposed to look to him in hope that as we seek to live our lives like him, that the same spirit who gave him power and authority and victory over the grave will work in our lives to give us the will, the wisdom, and the way to live, and one day victory over the grave. The suffering of the Son, not just His suffering on the cross, 
But his life in general was suffering. As the Apostles' Creed says, before we get to Pontius Pilate, he says, and he suffered. Yes, he suffered under Pontius Pilate with the crucifixion and all the judgments that were laid out against him, but his life was just a life of suffering. That makes Jesus the one we can look to as our example. He also helps us. And you may not feel very much help from Jesus today, this morning. You may be looking at your life and thinking of all the ways that you may fail. You may not feel at a deep level that Jesus is the one who helps you. As I've said before, you may just see Jesus as a coach with a stopwatch in his hand, just seeing if you really do and perform all that you're told to do in the Christian life. Take great encouragement that the Lord endured not just the cross for your salvation, but also endured the temptations we endure every day of his entire life so that he can help you. You are connected to all this divine help to endure through faith in Jesus. He's more than just the helper to help us endure through temptation. He also is our perfect example for holiness. Jesus wasn't some demigod floating above creation, not really interacting with human frailty. He was 100% human, made of the dust, born into impoverished circumstances, and yet lived a perfect life. This is why we talked last week about his desire to do the will of the Father. This is speculation, but maybe, and it might not be speculation, but it might not have been easier for Jesus to obey the Father than for you and me. Sometimes when we think about Jesus, we're like, well, yeah, he's God, so for sure he's going to be holy and blameless and all this, Right? And so we look to him as our example and we're like, yeah, but he, he had it much easier than I did. Did he? It's arguable that he had it harder because the will of the Father was very specific for him. And this is why he says, like, I could call down 10,000 angels. Like, I have the power to do all these things that you're not seeing, that that's not the will of the Father. Jesus would have been totally justified to create bread out of stones in the wilderness and feed himself, but that wasn't the will of the Father. So imagine having limitless power at your disposal, yet to have a very narrow set of behaviors given to you to obey. I think it was probably even harder for Jesus staying off that power to live a life holy before God. So you really can look to him as your example, brothers and sisters, old and young among us to know what it means to live a life that pleases God. So this idea of Jesus being our example is actually a very old doctrine. And it's very important to say that Jesus isn't just your example. And what happened on the cross isn't mainly just an example. But Jesus is our final and perfect example on how to live a life that pleases God, especially when it comes to how we can exhort our brothers and sisters to endure. 
the author highlights these aspects of the incarnation, not necessarily to teach theology, but to underscore what he's already commanded us again and again. Consider Jesus. Think on him. We look to him as our inspiration, our life, our sustenance, our peace, our resolve, our encouragement, our reconciliation, our friend, our king, our God, our example. So with all that said, I hope now I don't have to argue again today that Jesus is your example for how to live a life that pleases God. And he should be a great example for him. And you should be encouraged to look to him as your example, seeing his obedience as the perfect Example, also him having more difficulty. Today, we look to Jesus to answer this question. How can the old exhort the young? And how can the young exhort the old? We have to begin like we did last week and ask, is there a problem? Are there any issues that we see in our culture or in churches today that show us that this is a challenge for the young to exhort the old and the old to exhort the young for there to be good relationships between the generations? Yes, there are. We talked last week a little bit about willing segregation, right? Segregation is usually understood in a negative sense. But in the church, there are many willing segregations. And last week was talking about the unmarried and the married. I would argue that this week, this idea of the old and the young is actually worse. That is, for the church in the U.S., at least, it's a really big problem that between the generations, there's very little interaction. And if there is, it's not very helpful. Part of it is a real challenge. Like there are some logistical issues. There are real challenges when it comes to building relationships across generational lines. And part of it is the secular mind making headway into the church. Progress is seen as being made possible by splitting us up as many times as possible. Identity politics has made its way into the church especially at big churches with a lot of resources, right? You got your youth, not just your youth, but your middle school and high school programs. Then you have your young adult programs, but not just young adult, you have your college, college with kids and young marrieds. We split us up as many times as possible. You have a minister for each age group. Usually... This results in what I would call the danger of a homogenous environment. If you ever know anything about, uh, if you ever interacted with gardening or having an orchard, the more you have of the same type of plant, the more danger there is for disease to make its way into that orchard, that vineyard, that garden. The more similar those things are, the more vulnerable they are to the parasites and diseases that would come in and afflict them. The biblical mindset is this. If you look at the Shema from Deuteronomy, you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is a command to each individual, not just those with kids, but to the whole congregation of Israel. The focal point of 
action when it comes to loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to teach them diligently to your children. And then Paul says this in Romans 2. If you consider yourself a person who knows the law, a teacher of children, it was considered the highest honor in teaching within Jewish culture to be a teacher of children. And then Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to one another and shall declare your mighty acts. It's not saying that the old generation is going to declare the mighty works of the Lord to the younger generation, but that one generation will declare your works to another generation. It's a back and forth of both generations seeing God's faithfulness in their own time, exhorting one another to see and consider and rejoice in the mighty works of God. The results, I think, this is, I'm not saying that this issue with the generational gaps and this willing segregation is the only reason what I'm about to say is the case, but it's at least one of the problems. In 2017, Lifeway Research surveyed uh, churches in the United States, and 66% of Americans between 23 and 30 years old said they stopped attending church on a regular basis for at least a year after turning 18. Think about that. That 66% of children who grew up in church after they turn 18 stop for at least a year coming to church. Some of the details as to what's going on there. Here are some of the top reasons, the top five reasons they stopped attending church. Number one reason, I moved to college and stopped attending church. Ed Stetzer's comment was, it's not necessarily that they were at conflict with the church, it's that church just wasn't important anymore. They had other ways to have friends. They had other places to find meaning. The second reason, church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical. The third most cited reason, they didn't feel connected to the people in their church. The fourth most responded reason, I disagreed with the church's stance on political or social issues. And the fourth, uh, the fifth rather, my work responsibilities prevented me from attending church. So 66% drop out for at least a year. And of those 66%, 29% never come back. 39% start attending after that year of absence once a month or less. I would argue that's still a failure. So 68% of the 66% that leave the church come back less than once a month after a year of never attending church once they leave at 18. And only 31% of that 66% start attending twice a month or more. That's devastating. And if you don't understand or feel the weight of that problem, Maybe I haven't communicated it well. That should rest on your heart very heavy. What we're doing is not working. 
A 66% success rate is not success. That's failure. The, the solution is not try harder. The problem is more about the on-ramp into the fellowship of the church than it is about the off-ramp. And this is a problem for all generations. It's not just the older generation's fault for not exhorting the younger generation properly. It's also the fault of the younger generation for not taking responsibility and focusing so much on themselves. And part of that is our fault for telling the younger generation that it's all about them. And then we're surprised when they go out and live like it. And it is also partly their fault for believing it. It's about Christ. And that's the main point of this message. It's not just that we should be like Jesus to others because Jesus was the best example. It's that we preach the gospel to each other and point people to Jesus the better we live like him and treat others like he did. So if you want to be a part of the solution to prevent this mass exodus every year as kids turn 18 and move away to college, 66% of them never coming back to church, here's what I propose as the solution as we look to Jesus for how the generations can exhort one another. First, exhort one another by being like Jesus and honor the Father. When it comes to age differences, one of the things that's talked about a lot, and for good reason, is honor. Younger people were told that we should honor and respect our elders, honor our father and mother, and give honor to whom honor is owed. And this can seem very distasteful to young people. Right? Kids, are you listening? Has that ever felt good to you? Yeah, I'm commanded to honor my elders, respect my elders, honor my father and mother. Has that just ever brought a lot of joy to your heart? This guy? This lady? Have you met my parents? Why do I have to listen to and honor them? And not just your parents, the older among us. They don't understand me and they don't want to relate to me. Why do I need to honor them? And for the older people among us, you're called to defend and protect and guide and support the younger and to ensure that they have a good start so that they can thrive. And that can be difficult for us older people to hear as well because there's such a lack of gratitude with younger people. There's such a lack of Honoring. There's such a lack of understanding what sacrifices have been made for the older generation to preserve what is had. So the solution I propose is that we stop necessarily focusing on just the commands to honor one another. We set all that aside because in those things the enemy can find a foothold. And we look to Jesus as the example and how he honored his father first and foremost. Two incidents in Jesus' life that I'll bring up. The incident at the temple, right? Mary and Joseph, Joseph lose the Son of God, right? It's a problem. And then they realize that he's missing, thinking that he's with the cousins, and they go back and they see that he's in the temple instructing and questioning the religious leaders. 
And they're freaked out, right? As they should be because they lost the Son of God. And then they say, what are you doing? Why would you do this to us? And he says, didn't you know that I must be about my father's work? And then after that incident, it says that he lived with Mary and Joseph and was respectful and honorable to them as his parents. And then the second incident at the other end of Jesus' life is when he's in the garden. I've mentioned this incident multiple times. His greatest desire is for the will of his father to be done. Lord, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. So regardless of your age, regardless of who you're told to exhort or how different they are from you or how younger they are than you or how older they are than you, honor the Father. Young people, the way you can honor the older people here among you, your parents and otherwise, is to have your attention and your heart set on honoring your heavenly father. I guarantee you, if the number one goal of your life, young people, is to honor your father in heaven, your mother and father and the older people among you that you're commanded to honor will be honored. Even if there's a little bit of conflict here and there, just like Mary and Joseph, he's hanging out in the temple, they've already left, where's Jesus? Even if there are momentary conflicts with what that means, as you seek, if your number one goal is to honor the Father and not please yourself, you will honor your father and your mother. To the older people in here, the way you can most help and serve and protect the younger people among us is by not growing weak in faith, but having your hope set on God and honoring Him above all. The enemies of these things are self and what you want out of life. For the young people among us, you have your whole life in front of you. You've got all the freedoms coming up. You've got all the things that you'd like to do. And some of the times your parents or us older people, we encourage that. We encourage you to have as much fun as you possibly can because maybe we wish that we had had the chance to have that much fun. But that's an enemy to making the glory of God your number one goal and honoring the Father your number one goal. And for the older people among us, the enemies of living life this way are pride and insisting on being recognized. When you look at all that you've sacrificed or all that you've done or what your generation has brought to the table, you can think, well, I should be recognized or given praise for what I've done, what we've done, how much we've sacrificed, what we do every day. That's not focusing on honoring the Father. So that's the first one. Be like Jesus and honor the Father in heaven. Second way, be like Jesus and count others more significant than yourselves. I preached on this when we came up to interview in October, but if you would look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is a radical, transforming idea. 
And if you can really embrace that in your heart, young people and old people, if you truly consider others more significant than yourselves, that is the mind of Christ. That's what it means to be like him, that you would consider others more significant than yourself. And not just like a mindset, not just kind of like, oh yeah, more significant. It takes action. It actually does things in your life. It drove Jesus to give his life as a ransom for us on the cross. And when you can love each other that way, that it's not for you a sacrifice. So the baby in the nursery, more significant, more important than me. The person who doesn't understand me, maybe they're from a different generation, maybe they're wild and crazy young kids or cranky old people, more significant than me, more important than me. And when you can really believe that, when you're not just trying to trick yourself so you can give yourself the assurance, well, I'm being like Jesus because I'm trying to force myself to think this. But when you can really think this, other people are more significant than me. That is where we make progress. That's when we see the tide turn from this mass exodus. So that applies to both sides. Third way, be like Jesus and minister to everyone. There's a false perception that Jesus only ministered to or cared for the sinners. Yes, he spoke harshly to the religious elite, but that is exactly what they needed to hear. We fall into the rut of wanting to help people who are just like us or people that we relate to really well. Jesus ministers to the poor, the rich, the proud, the humble, the young, the old, the sick, the well, the Romans, the Jews. And I could go on and on. Jesus ministered to everyone. Whether they were like him or not. And I don't want to go to all those texts because we're running out of time. I'll give you one. On the last day of the feast, this is John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh, how we should cry out, regardless of how old or how different or how young this person in front of you is, whoever it is, to be Christ-like is to minister to them. And to cry out, whoever needs Jesus, I will do what's necessary to point them to him. Like Paul said, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To the Gentile, I became as a Gentile. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Though not being outside the law of Christ, I became all things to all people so that I might by any means possible save some. Your preferences and the people you like and the people you like to associate yourself with, those are the footholds the enemy uses to cut us off from each other. And we are not Jesus. So we can't cry out, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. But, think of this. You, brothers and sisters, have more at your disposal in terms of power and efficacy than Jesus did in this moment. 
Because Jesus cries out on the great day of the feast and there's no indication in the text that anyone came to him. And he says to the apostles, I go away and it's better for you that I go away or the helper will not come. And at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is dropped on the church and rests on them, Peter preaches and thousands come to the Lord. You are empowered and because it's God's place and his providence in history that you're speaking and crying out to anyone and everyone who will listen to draw them to the Lord, no matter how different they are than you, young, old, whatever, by the Spirit you have more power. And we can be like John the Baptist. He wasn't Jesus, but he pointed people to Jesus. I must decrease, he must increase. The fourth way. Be like Jesus and associate with the lowly. It's not just anyone and everyone, right? If we think in the terms of anyone and everyone, the enemy can use that to just make us fall back into the ruts of the people who are just like us. You say, well, you know, it's anyone and everyone. I've got these friends. I'm exhorting those friends, so I'm doing my part. Jesus was called the friend of sinners. More than that, the incarnation itself, think of this, imagine this, the infinitely perfect, pure, holy Son of God who created the universe by the word of his power walked among us. In that passage I read from Hebrews 12, enduring such hostility from sinners, it's not just talking about the crucifixion, Imagine trying to guide and encourage and help sinners if you're the son of God. If you've ever tried to train someone in a job setting or help someone along in a spiritual setting and there's a big gap there spiritually, it can be more and more frustrating. Think of Jesus, how wide the gap between his spiritual maturity and the, of the apostles it says he's even stunned at certain points. He, he was shocked because of their unbelief. In the days of his flesh, this is Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was honored because of his reverence. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief because he associated with the lowly. Here's how it applies to us. This is from Romans, Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In Romans 15, 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If we could just memorize and really embrace both those texts, brothers and sisters, and really live our lives according to them, so many problems would be solved. Maybe that's some homework for you. If you want some sanctified homework, just write down those two passages. Maybe memorize them as a family. Romans 12, 16. Romans 15, 1. There are a myriad of implications that come from that, that you are under obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, to bear one another's burdens and associate with the lowly like Jesus. 
The fifth way, be like Jesus and run with endurance the race set before you. Going back to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus is our example in running our race well. And Courtney and Tiffany ran 51 and a half miles yesterday. That's a long race. But for you, brothers and sisters, this spiritual race that doesn't necessarily involve physical exertion, but involves a ton of spiritual exertion, begins at the moment where Christ justifies you and does not end. You are not crowned until the day you stand before him. Run with endurance the race set before you. If you're young, you have a long way to go. And if you're old or older, the goal is to finish well, regardless of how long you have to go. Or if Christ were to return this afternoon, run with endurance. Look to him. The last way I'll give and we'll close. Be like Jesus. See and seek the kingdom. And I I had to wrestle with whether or not I would read this text to you because I feel like I use it and think about it a lot. Um, Maybe there are texts like that for you that you seem to always wind up going back to. This is one for me. And maybe it's not for you. So maybe it's not uh, redundant for you. But it's Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. So this, and and understand this or think of this in the context of whether you're old or whether you're young, making your life about the kingdom. And this is how you exhort the other generations so that the old among us would look at the young among us and say, wow, they're making their lives about the kingdom. They got their whole life in front of them. They have all the freedoms and energy and health, and yet they're making their lives about the kingdom. And for the young of us, as we look to the older among us, that we would say, wow, they've reached the time where they could make their lives about travel or about the type of retirement they really wanted, but they're making their lives about the kingdom. Matthew 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For these things the Gentiles seek. 
Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And maybe the reason this verse is just always come back to me is I feel like if you were to summarize that text into several different principles, I'd probably fail on every single one of them. And maybe that's you today. But whether you're old or whether you're young, the way that you can most inspire the other generations to set all that anxiety and caring about the things that the Gentiles care about and making it about the kingdom and Christ's righteousness. And that will shine forth and that will outstrip the effectiveness of any program that we could put together to try and help the young people among us stay in church. It reminds us that it's not about us having a lot of good friends and maybe they're Christians and maybe they go to church together. But as seers and seekers of the kingdom, we are ensuring that many will come and join our cause. Our hope is that many would come and submit to King Jesus. It's not about how old you are or how young you are or your life stage or your culture or your race or gender or life plans. It's about exhorting your brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can all stand together there on that day and say, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of people who are different from us. Thank you for the lowly in our midst. And for those of us who perceive ourselves as being strong, I pray that we would bless you for the gift of those among us who we see as weak and that we would take it as an opportunity to be like Jesus and bear with the failings of the weak. Encourage us all, old, young, or whatever we would consider ourselves, to not please ourselves but to serve others. Pray ultimately that you would by your spirit strip away the anxieties and the cares that we have as we live this life so much like the Gentiles do. Give us the power to set all that aside and focus on your kingdom. Not because we're anything special or because we're so spiritually mature, but because we see you as the pearl as the treasure hidden in the field and it would not be loss it would not be radical it would not be crazy for us to sell everything we had and buy the field I pray if I've explained Jesus and exalted him in a certain way that has struck the heart of someone in this room who does not know you in the power of your resurrection that you would use today for them and the words that have been spoken, that they would come to know you in truth. Friends, as we sing these next few songs, if you need prayer or you need to meet Jesus for the first time or confess sin, I pray that you would do so. Whether where you're sitting or if you need to come up to the front and pray with me, I pray that you would do so. Father, again, we trust you. And I ask that we would be inspired by the example of your son, Jesus, today. It's in his name I pray.